from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Eric gave very freely of his time to lecture all around the world, and everyone, anywhere, who listened to his amazing adventures always came away spellbound and full of admiration. Unfortunately for all of us, many of those talks are still out there on the web, so hopefully we should be able to look at them forever. He was also a very prolific author from his first book, Wings on My Sleeve, which was published as long ago as 1961, to his final book, Too Close for Comfort, which was published only last year. But we've come here tonight, of course, to listen to Paul tell us about Winkle's extraordinary life. Now, Paul himself is a very well-known historian, broadcaster, and writer, who's always specialised in air power. I first met him a very long time ago when he came into my office in the Ministry of Defence as a young reporter seeking information on the progress with the Tornado and Eurofighter programme. He later became editor-in-chief of Jane's Defence Weekly, war correspondent for Sky News and a studio expert for the BBC and CNN. He's a very keen pilot and until recently, until very recently, was an officer in the Army Air Corps Reserve, which he retired from with the rank of full colonel. Personally, I can't think of anyone better than Paul to talk about Winkle. So without more ado, here he is to tell us about Winkle's life at full throttle. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not normally daunted by public speaking, but boy, am I daunted tonight. Not only do we have family uh, in the room, but we have about 8 million fleet air arm ties, which it's very good to see, (laughs) especially if you're somebody who uh, uh, went to Dartmouth in uh, May 1975, uh, Cunningham intake or Cunningham division, for those of you, yellow, the good lot, you know, not that lot like Hawk at the top of the the hill, Um, and then had a big argument with the Royal Navy about whether or not I should fly or be a submariner. Um, I decided I didn't want to be a submariner, I would fly. Um, And because of that, I met Eric Melrose-Brown, for which I've been very grateful. The little sidebar to that is the guy who was president of the Admiralty Interview Board, later came to work for me at Jane's. That was very satisfying. (laughs) For the next 60 minutes, I want to talk to you about about Eric. I, I was privileged to know him for getting on for 40 years. Um, and in the last few years, um, uh, really developed um, that, that friendship. And, and what an amazing character he was. He never, ever seemed to tire of being informative, of talking to people. Nothing was too much trouble. It's just, just a fabulous man. Um, and I'm particularly keen, uh, or delighted tonight, that, uh, that we have... Glenn uh, Melrose Brown uh, with us, his son, uh, Roz, his wife, and, uh, and Jean, who you know was his companion in his later years. Um, the, the, the problem with that for me is that um, the heckling will start uh, a little later, I'm quite sure. Um, but let's, let's crack on and, and see how far I can get without uh, being heckled. Um, so these are the good facts. I mean, where do you start with Eric? Where do you start? Um, 487 different types, that isn't including variants. Uh, There are 14 Spitfires in there and six Seafires. You you start to add it up and it becomes a big number. Um, And I now know the figures because I found in his own handwriting um, uh, at his house last week, 2,721 launches. Um, That isn't necessarily catapult, but it's free takeoffs as well. And the 2,407 traps. Uh, the first twin, the first tricycle, the first jet on a carrier, um, you can go on. 23 major accidents, I found, 15 near death. That's four more than Neil Armstrong, I- including the moon. Um, and he had Churchill come to his bedside twice. Did you know it was twice? I, I thought it was once, but it's twice. So, um, you know, this is the sort of character uh, we're talking about. Um, and then there's the other bits. Wall of Death Rider with a lion. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, Berlin Olympics, of course. You know, 1936, where else would you have gone if you were speaking German? Uh, Nuremberg Rally. Arrested by the SS. Yeah, it's a pretty good one. 
survived the U-boat sinking, ditched inverted, that's quite clever, um, saw um, the first British jet fly, by mistake, and I'll come back to that, played with the Glenn Miller uh, band, which is why somebody in the front row was called Glenn, with two N's. Um, I suppose the darker side, Bergen-Belsen liberation, that must have been a horrendous time for somebody who loved Germany uh, but found the darkness of, of the Nazi party. Um, flying German jets and rocket planes, interrogating Goering, arresting Himmler, debriefing the German designers into helicopters, transonic flight experiments. I mean, you know, I don't know where to stop. Um, the big thing is, is that in that period, 1936 until the 21st of February, Eric Melrose Brown, Winkles, he was known to, to many people, although I was very strictly told right at the very beginning he was Eric, um, that he was a witness to just about everything that happened. Um, quite, quite remarkable. Um, so the other question is, why Winkle? Now, there's a lot of debate about this, and Glenn and I have been having a, a series of discussions, which I think are rather, rather fun. That's Winkle Esmond uh, there, five foot seven. Um, happens to be uh, Eric Melrose Brown, same, same height. Now, did Eric choose Winkle? Did the Navy choose Winkle? There's a lot of debate about that. Um, who's going to be the next Winkle? Can there be a next Winkle? Um, in the fleet era? I think, I think not. So I'm going to leave that question almost hanging. Um, Esmond, of course, from a Tipperary family, although born in Yorkshire, um, with a Victoria Cross and a DSO um, for uh, the operations against Bismarck, the DSO, and the Victoria Cross for the Channel Dash. So something um, for Eric to, to live up to. And my goodness, didn't he just? First flights... Not exactly that aeroplane, but that type, gauntlet with his father sitting on his father's knee. Um, but first flight in, um, in a, uh, a bookmaster with, with a leading German exponent of, of aviation. Somebody that his father introduced him to. And, and the, there are various pieces. We've, we've got to piece together a bit more about um, this early uh, flying in 1936. And, and, and why and what happened. But the key to it is, and it's in Wings on My Sleeve, which is a beautifully written piece about um, uh, learning um, just how good some of these German pilots were, which I think gave Eric a huge respect for, for the German aeronautical industry, not just for the pilots, but of course also for the designers as well. And if you look at um, that early Germany piece, it really did shape his life because that helped him um, later in the war, the fact that he spoke German, the fact that he'd been to Germany, the fact that he understood the mindset, I think allowed him to go on and go and um, snaffle German jets, particularly from um, underneath the eyes uh, of the Americans, which of course is very important. My apologies to any American who happens to be here. <clears throat> so, um, yes, he did see the great man run. He was there to see that with his father in 1936. That alone is an interesting thing which you could write um, a whole chapter about. Um, but he also snuck into that um, as well, which is reasonably good, um, I would have thought. Um, uh, he's actually um, third from the left, 15 <laughs> row back um, in, in the picture. Um, and obviously that's a, uh, that's a generic uh, picture, but but it just gives you, you know, can you imagine being a young man and being in this place um, and seeing all of this, speaking the language? By the way, um, Hitler's grammar and diction was appalling, very typical quote of an Austrian peasant, unquote, um, which is exactly what he was. Um, but uh, I, I thought that's rather good, sort of you know, taking the time, and everyone is in awe of, of the Fuhrer uh, to... Uh, to critique his, his, um, his uh, syntax and, um, and, and pronunciation. Um, but this is the one that, that I really love. We actually were not sure. We don't know that that actually is Eric, I have to say. But there cannot have been too many organisations that had a lion in the wall of death. The reason I found out about this is very simple. 
we were discussing charities, and this was about six months ago. And Eric said, I'll never give any money to the RSPCA, which I thought was very out of character for a man who was um, certainly not soft-hearted, but certainly very generous with both his time and, and supporting of, of charities. And um, he said, uh, it's because of the lion. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it's a great line. So you have to say, tell me about the lion. Um, and he said, well, we used to do the wall of death with a lion. He said, my boss used to, his best trick was going around in a, um, a 125 two-stroke Indian um, uh, motorbike with the lion on the, on the back with his paws over, over his shoulders. And he said, I used to go around over the top of them and we'd go around, we'd go around together. Um, so the RSPCA thought that was cruel to the lion. I mean, if, that picture there of a lion, that lion's a very happy lion. I mean, you know, it's like dogs with their heads out of, out of cars, isn't it? I mean, it's just amazing. He said, I'm never going to get any money to the RSPCA as a result of that. I mean, you know, just stopping us from doing that. We were having so much fun. Um, I presume um, this was his sort of gap year job, if, if, if you like, um, or uh, at least part of it. But, you know, this, this is where... It's not the daredevil, because he was not a daredevil. Everything that he did was considered. He would have, I'm sure, considered this. He would have looked at this. He would have assessed the risks, and then he would have gone, right, I think I can do this. Um, and the, you know, another one, at, at Lake Constance, um, just on Lindau, just um, on that border area of Austria, and, uh, uh, and down, goes down to Liechtenstein. Um, that isn't actually his, uh, his car. Um, but it's one very close to it. And, and if um, those of you who take uh, that wonderful magazine, Octane, um, will have read about the car. What you may not have read, and uh, these aren't members of the family, I should just say. I just want to get that out there straight away. Um, but when you, what you may not have known about the car, um, and this particular incident um, which happened, the one that, that's there for real, um, in, I think, 2014, um, at the Overton is that he didn't want the door opened of the car because the only way to impress a girl is to jump straight in. <laughs> Do you know what he did? He jumped straight in. So he would have been 95, I think, at the time, and he did that. I can't do that today. I mean, I just think it's absolutely fabulous. And, and you know, nice, uh, nice sea fury there, which is currently, as you're probably aware, being rebuilt. Um, but, hey... Um, at least it's still there to be rebuilt. Isn't that fabulous? I think the car alone is fabulous. Um, it, it's just wonderful uh, to see. But goons like these came to arrest him. If only they had known, if only they had known who they were arresting. They were actually arresting Flying Officer uh, Eric Melrose Brown, Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve, but they didn't know that at the time. And they took him to the border and threw him out of the country with the car, and there's a great story about the car, with having a, 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 an SS sergeant um, driving the car who was too big for the car. But the reason they didn't want the car, because it was British and substandard, and it would not fit in the Third Reich, so they didn't want it. So he got his car back, and we got one of the most incredible aviators of the, um, of the Second World War, certainly in terms of, of test flying. Let's go back a bit from, from that little thing, but this, is, this isn't the first aircraft he flew in. The first aircraft was, he went solo in was G-BAM, a GA-BAM, which actually crashed at um, Borough Green, which is just outside um, Seven Oaks, about uh, three weeks after he went solo in it. There is no connection uh, with that. Um, the, 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 uh, well, the CAA weren't formed at the time, so it would have been, I don't know, Air Ministry probably. Um, so I didn't know until I found um, a logbook of his early flying. So he got time off to go and get a civilian qualification. This is 38, remember, this is Munich, this is all of that time. And the only place that had spaces, he was in Edinburgh, remember, uh, was down in Westmorling. Ironically, what, seven miles from, from the house um, which he lived in for for more than 40 years. I, mean, I find that really quite, quite remarkable. And you know, DH-60G um, is what he first went solo in. Um, 
I do know how many hours before he went solo, but I'm not telling you because it will be in the biography. Can't tell everything. It's the Royal Aeronautical Society. Um, so, University of Edinburgh. Um, I think he read modern languages majoring in German. There's, there's the sort of odd bits on the, on the web about what he read, but I think it was modern languages at University of Edinburgh. There he is, um, looking particularly rosy um, in what must be a coloured photograph, I would have thought, in that rather strange uniform there uh, that he's wearing. Of, um, that he, when he came back from Germany in 1939, he said, uh, here I am, I can fly. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, uh, I've been flying in this, this baby uh, here, and the, the Air Force said, frankly, sorry, old chap, can't take you just at the minute. Uh, there's a three-month waiting list. However, the Royal Navy are very keen. Went down the road to the Navy recruiting who said, come this way, as those of you who wear the tie will know. They're very welcoming. Um, you know, come this way and um, let me take your freedom away from you. And then they said, yeah, but I, I know you can fly, but you haven't flown with us. So let's start all over again. Um, which he had to. Now, a little aside, which gives you an indication of the character of the man. Um, Sydenham, which you'll probably know, is now called John... I think it's not John Lennon, no, it's George Best, isn't it? They have strange names for airports in Britain these days. Um, is um, Belfast City um, Airport, for what it was. Um, he met a young girl uh, at, uh, who was at school out there and uh, decided to show off to her um, by flying... Uh, the Magister along, uh, along the playing field of the school and then found there were rugby posts. So, <laughs> as you do, you avoid them. You, you uh, open throttle, pull up, and he turned left, and there was the cathedral. <laughs> um, so this is the first accident, okay? So at least three feet off the, uh, off, I think, off the starboard wing um, and about six inches off the top of the cathedral. Um, but it was wartime and perfectly acceptable. Um, and he was in the Royal Navy. And, you know, what more can you have if you're in the Royal Navy? No, he didn't. He wasn't the first man to fly the jet. He did fly the aircraft afterwards. But what I think is just so serendipitous about the whole of his life is that he is taking a martlet down south, lands at Cranwell because of the weather, spends the night, the next morning gets up early, and somebody says to him... You wouldn't mind just doing a Met check, would you? Every 3,000 feet or so going up. And then uh, when you come back, report to the tower, uh, give us the Met, and then make yourself scarce. Um, and so he did all this, and the, the controller said, yeah, make yourself scarce. Just stand in the back, don't say anything, and it'll be fine. What did they do? They rolled out the first jet. This must have been, and as he says in, in his... Um, in Wings on My Sleeve, it really was quite, quite remarkable to see an aeroplane without a propeller. Of course, everyone knew about jet engines at the time, um, but they didn't know that we were, we were this far in advance. They didn't know anyone was this far in advance to have an aeroplane which flew. Um, and I just wonder if that gave him that little piece of impetus that said, do you know, test flying, you know, perhaps this is what I want to do. Perhaps I, I could do this. And certainly... The Royal Navy thought that. But before that, the world's smallest aircraft carrier, HMS Audacity. So if you're going to actually... This isn't really an act of war, um, I have to say. Um, but you know, at the time, we were very short of carriers, so a very, very, very light escort carrier. Um, uh, had been a, a grain ship, um, had really... Um, somebody just bolted some plates on the top. And, of course, these were, this was a stopgap measure uh, to defend uh, the convoys in the Battle of the Atlantic, the absolute lifeline of Britain, uh, and therefore it was a target. Um, and these are brilliant um, uh, pictures that uh, uh, Michael Turner uh, created. Um, first of all, the show, uh, Eric um, uh, having a bit of fun with a condor. Um, it's a fairly scary um, sort of interception, that. Um, head on, but Eric told me that he'd sat down when they were on the ship with other members of 802 Squadron and they had looked at the defensive arcs of fire of the Condor and the only one that he thought he had a reasonable chance 
of intercepting was going head on uh, with the aircraft because everywhere else in the beams and the quarters, the aircraft was very well defended by guns. It, it was a bit of a flying porcupine, as, of course, the Luftwaffe called the Sunderland afterwards. Um, and then in December, you get sunk by a U-boat um, in, into a life raft. Um, the great thing that Eric said was, was so important about being in the air crew was you had a proper life raft, had a Mae West, which kept you, if I can do the impression, Eric's stomach wasn't quite the size of mine, but you were like that. So you, if you fell asleep, your head was out of the water. If you were wearing a standard navy piece of cork around you, you went like that, and which he, he believes accounts for the fact that he survived and so many people didn't. Uh, that and the water. And there are lots of interesting stories about when they got back to Liverpool because one of the things that Eric managed to do was grab his service dress before the ship sank. So when they came off the ship, everyone else was in survivor's gear, which made them look a bit like, oh, the same as the U-boat because the U-boat was sunk two days later. They were also on the ship and they came up in survivor's gear. They were all booed, including members of the Royal, the Royal Navy. And Eric was still in uniform, and everyone cheered Eric. I think that's a great story. That's, again, a bit of serendipitous luck, isn't it? Um, this, is, this is a really, really interesting story. This is really how you upset fighter command if you really want to try hard. And Brian Service, who's sitting in the front here, is uh, one of the people responsible for Michael Turner for, for creating this. Um, I have a copy of this, which... Uh, um, which Eric has written on it. It was all my. F it was all. Uh, this is um, all Paul Beaver's fault because he told me about it and I blabbed apparently um, because he hadn't told anyone about uh, looping around the fourth bridge and there's a good reason for it. There are a number of boards for inquiry, including why uh, Halifax tried to do the same, but that's a different <laughs> kettle of fish, right? So this is a. Um, uh, this is you know Spitfire Five stroke. Uh, Mark 1 Seafire, um, and operating out of Drem, um, it was a secret aircraft. Uh, nobody knew that we had navalized, hooked, would be hooked, um, Spitfires. Uh, nobody knew that we were going to have um, Spitfires on carriers, in effect. Um, and Eric went up and uh, he told me that he sort of saw the bridge, and he was in an aeroplane, and it was a bridge, <laughs> and it has spans. And what do you do? Well, of course, yes. You know, you do what George Pickering did in the uh, Winchester Bypass, for example, and, and was followed by dozens of Polish pilots afterwards. You fly under bridges. I mean, it, you know, there's, there's an Army Air Corps pilot who flew an Oster all the way up the Thames underneath all the bridges. Um, it was his last flight. <laughs> Not because he died. Um, but this, you know, this is just brilliant, isn't it? So... Uh, you do this, and Fighter Command in Scotland is on parade, standing to attention, I'm told for eight hours, until somebody volunteers um, to uh, own up to the fact that they, uh, they may have uh, actually done this. And, of course, nobody did, because nobody could, because the fighter squadrons at Turnhouse and um, uh, up in, uh, up in the, the north of Scotland as well, Wick and whatever... Um, those squadrons that were then um, uh, had been rested from operations uh, in the Channel, uh, there they were um, not having anything to do with this whatsoever. So you, what you end up having is a brilliant, brilliant piece of Royal Navy one-upmanship because not only do we now have the, the, uh, the sea fire in the Royal Navy, uh, but we've made fighter command stand uh, out to attention. Um, and you're probably aware that... Uh, Eric uh, flew sea gladiators uh, during the Battle of Britain along with two other um, acting sub-lieutenants in defence of Filton. Um, but because they were not in a formed unit, as declared to the Air Ministry, there's no Battle of Britain clasp, um, which is a fairly typical sort of piece of civil service... Forgive me, Sir Don. Um, the piece of civil service... Um, uh, sort of structure. This, this is, you, 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 you may have been prepared to give your life in the Battle of Britain, but you couldn't actually get the class because you went in a formed unit. Important that. Um, I think that's fab. Um, and, and it's another brilliant piece of, uh, of... I think there are about 
Brian, there are about three or four other paintings, aren't there, that, of, of similar, um, similar of, of this, this event. It became a bit of a cause celeb about six or seven years ago. Um, let's move down uh, a bit to 1944. Um, we've got Glenn Two Ends, uh, Melrose Brown here, because this is uh, who he's named after. Now, there are two very interesting stories about this. Um, the Milton Ernest Hall in Bedford. Eric was flying at the time out of Bedford Royal Aircraft Establishment. Um, 14th of December. Uh, that's quite important. 15th of December, this man disappears. So this is the night before um, the Norseman takes off to go uh, across to France. Um, now, Eric said to me, okay, this is my primary source, but I have no corroborating, that he played with the band. We believe that what he actually did was stand up there with a trombone and did a bit of that, um, without perhaps doing any of the blowing bit. Would you agree, Glenn? I think that's... So he did sort of stand up there. But Glenn's mother, Lynn, sang with the Glenn Miller Band. Now, that is... That it's in itself is just fabulous. I mean, who is one of the most iconic musicians of the period? And again, Eric manages... <laughs> to get invited to come and play, gets invited, you know, Lynn gets invited to sing, she was, had a fabulous voice. Um, and you know, it just to me is, talk about getting to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, how do you, how do you manage that? I just think it's absolutely fabulous um, that he should do that. And we discussed the various, uh, what happened to Glenn, Glenn Miller, you know, was it number nine squadron coming back from a raid? Um, releasing its bombs over the channel. Possibly time seemed to work for Lancaster returning. Um, or was the fact that he was um, taken up by the OSS because he was so important, spirited back to New Jersey, uh, where he died only a few years ago, aged 153. Um, it, you, you can have, take your choice on the, on the conspiracy theories. Um, my conspiracy theory is very simple. The aircraft took off when nobody else was flying. It was really bad weather. It was December, across the channel. And sadly, it went in. And whether it went in because a Lancaster released its bomb load or because of the weather or the pilot flew in because no horizon flew into the water, who knows? Uh, the sad thing was we lost Glenn Miller. Um, the great thing for everybody else is, of course, we get lots and lots of Glenn Miller music now as a result of that because he's a tragic hero. Um, and, you know... It's just quite, quite remarkable that Eric should be there that night before. Not that I'm suggesting it's a conspiracy theory here before anyone <laughs> thinks there might be. On to German jets and other aeroplanes. Um, uh, this, is, uh, this is Eric's personal transport aircraft. The, um, I might even be able to make this work. I think I probably can. Yeah. The, the Condor. Um, the various views... Of, of German aeroplanes are fabulous. Eric has uh, written um, little notes in, in, a, in a ledger of his... He has outstanding aeroplanes, very good aeroplanes, moderate aeroplanes, and complete shockers. Um, and the complete shockers are a lot of these. Um, he quite liked the 262, thought that was really quite a quite a smart aeroplane. Um, and you have to say, any, anybody who's seen the, the aircraft fly, the, the, the replica aircraft that uh, are in Germany now, it is a beautiful aeroplane. It is, it is a swallow. It is just, I think it's outstanding when you see it in the air. Um, some of the other aircraft are a bit sort of functional. Um, there's a great story about the uh, Blumenvoss flying boat and about the attempt to, of uh, one of the pilots to try and kill him. Um, in the aircraft in, in Norway when he was sent to, to uh, go and see it. I just think it was just amazing. And he survived flying the comet. Survived flying the comet. I mean, just quite remarkable. Do you know, they, they took it back to Farnborough, towed behind a Mark 14 Spitfire. I mean, that, that I think is just bonkers. Um, and it was Eric in the in 163, of course, and it was um, Martindale um, in... Uh, uh, in the Spitfire. I mean, that is just, you know, how do you, how do, you do that? I mean, the Spitfire is limited. I mean, I've been privileged enough to fly um, a Spitfire back from 
Amsterdam to, um, to Goodwood. Um, landed with vapor, you know, the old thing. It didn't actually conk out on the, it, it, it. We had about, what, sorry, anyone from the CAA here? We had 45 minutes to diversion of fuel, of course. <laughs> um, but the one, the one that I think is really, really cool is this. This is, this is Eric on top of the Arado bomber, the 234 um, version B-4, which he has written on the side and, um, on, on this, in this ledger, uh, that the aircraft, uh, the, the pilot was conveniently seated very close to the point of the accident, <laughs> i.e. the pilot was just there. Um, I'm not sure that he thought this was a, a brilliant uh, aeroplane. Uh, but he got to fly it. He got to fly this and some 100 other types and variants. Uh, the Fort Wolf 190, for example, he said was a really good aircraft, but at, at, at altitude, difficult um, to, um, uh, to manoeuvre compared to the latest models of Spitfire. And the stall was shocking. One of his favourite words, shocking. He comes out, a lot of shockings come out in, uh, uh, in his logbooks, which I think is absolutely fabulous. But look at, look at it, it's, it's, it's a classic aeroplane. I'm pressing the wrong button, sorry, I've just blinded the uh, Mohammed in the uh, screen in there. So um, you also have to talk about Spitfires and Seafires when you, when you talk about any uh, aircraft of this period. Um, and, uh, Eric was very kind to, to write a forward for a book uh, that I uh, wrote last year. Um, and we had great debates about how many marks of Spitfire had he actually flown. Um, and we worked out at the end, it was 14 marks uh, that he tested and flown, um, including some really good uh, flights. Like Jeffrey Quill asked him to take a Mark 8 when, before it had been publicly announced the Griffin engine Spitfire, to take it um, down through Britain at no higher than 200 feet above ground level. Um, and stopping at various places. He stopped at an American air base in, um, uh, uh, in Northamptonshire and loaded the aeroplane up with uh, you know, American rations. Because you're going to, to Chatters Hill, which is just um, in Hampshire, just between Winchester and Middle Wallop, basically, which was the supermarine uh, test field. Um, he said it was one of the most exhilarating flights he'd ever had because he was allowed to do whatever he liked with a new aeroplane with a, thun quote, thunderous engine. Um, and he was told to do it as quickly as possible. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is the, uh, the, the, the other team. This is uh, young uh, Swadonita Martindale, who, of course, has the, um, the interesting distinction of having um, uh, flown a spit far faster than anybody else um, by accident um, from about 40,000 feet in a dive uh, where the propeller came off, followed by most of the engine. Um, <laughs> which is really in itself quite, quite remarkable. Uh, but this is the team. And this is the, I think this is a really interesting uh, picture because here are, these are the leading exponents of, of test flying before we actually had organised test pilots, um, schools and the like. The Empire Test Pilot School came so much later. Um, and Eric was an honorary member of that because you know, he was already flying test aircraft. He was already a test pilot before anyone thought that you actually perhaps ought to put people through a Boscombe down course in, in, in some sort. And um, what's interesting um, is that uh, Phil O'Dell, who now flies um, Spitfires and uh, is chief test pilot of Rolls-Royce, tells me that, the, that when he went through uh, the course, they were still using some basic notes that Eric had written about how you assess an aeroplane before you get into it to fly, um, about how you go about testing an aeroplane, that Eric had sat down and thought about and produced. Now, that's the mind of the person. Here's somebody who wasn't gung-ho. He wasn't a, you know, a, a seat-of-the-pants pilot. He was incredibly... Um, the only time he was really gung-ho was driving a car. But most of the time, he was considered, and he managed the risk, which is why, of course, he lived to 97, and why, of course, he had so many aircraft types and had so many close calls or too close for, com for comfort. This is the thing, I think, which shocked him most. And his 97th birthday party, some of us here were privileged to be um, in uh, Bucks Club um, for uh, his birthday. Um, the, the, 
that in itself was quite remarkable. He was not 100% on his 97th birthday. Um, but he insisted on getting up and speaking. Um, and I thought it was very interesting. Um, for, uh, looking back, I, I took notes. I used to take notes all the time. In fact, I have a series of notebooks that Jean used to comment on, and I wasn't allowed to sort of enter the house or... Uh, unless I had my notebook, um, and then I got ribbed about having the notebook because I wrote down the, the wisdom of Winkle. Um, and the thing which... This is the thing, I think, that really shocked him. Eric was deeply um, impressed by Germany, very, very conscious of the Germans, of their aeronautical capabilities, of the, the, the strength of character of their pilots. Um, you know, he really, really liked what he found in Germany. He kept his German up, although um, in later years, perhaps conversationally, um, uh, not as good as it used to be, but he used to keep his German up. And there was a couple of people he would call and speak German to. Um, Glenn's mother probably spoke better German uh, than Eric, for having lived in the economy when they were in Germany um, uh, later, which we might well come to. Uh, but this is the thing that really got him was how could these people who were so... He really adored being in Germany. How could they do this? Um, and so, just by accident, he had spoke better German than the official interpreters of the intelligence corps. So he was brought in to do some of the interrogations. And he said what was really interesting is that the, this guy, who was the camp commandant, knew he was going to be hung he, or shot. He knew that that was it, it's index. Um, and he... Didn't really. He had remorse, but he, you know, he 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 didn't didn't. He wasn't a, as ardent a Nazi as the female uh, commandant was, who just didn't care. She thought she was doing exactly the right thing. And it's interesting that the females that Eric interrogated, he said, were by far the worst. And he called the female commandant the worst human being he'd ever met. And I thought it interesting. His 97th birthday. This is something that he spoke about. He chose when he cho he could have spoke about spoken about anything um, in the last what um, seventy odd years of, of flying experience. He chose to spend a majority of the time reminding people um, about this. But what he quite liked was talking to these people. He particularly liked to uh, and talking to Hermann Goering. Here he had. He said it was really very interesting. Goering had been interrogated by uh, American um, counterintelligence um, officers, and none of them had been a pilot. Eric was the first and probably the only pilot to interrogate him. So they were, and because Eric was able to do it in German, they did what pilots do they talked to airplanes. Uh, and the final question he asked Goering was, who won the Battle of Britain? And Goering said, it was a draw, because you were having problems and we were having problems, and it was going to be who lost aircraft, the attrition, Battle of Attrition. Really interesting um, uh, observation. Um, he found this character uh, wandering around um, in an old uh, uniform um, and suggested that he might be worth... Um, uh, actually having uh, uh, arrested by the, the Americans, Heinrich Himmler. Um, and this lady, he'd first seen fly in 1937 in uh, the Deutsche Halle, uh, flying a helicopter, and had been introduced to her because his father was the British air attaché in Berlin. Um, and they kept a, a correspondence up until Hannah Reich uh, committed suicide in the 1970s. Um, and he has and I hope still has, but we haven't found yet, um, some correspondence from her right at the end where she said, and, and the quote is, uh, what began in the bunker now must end, where she had sworn allegiance uh, to Adolf Hitler. Um, she was an absolute ardent Nazi. To get in to see Hitler, the last part of the war, she had fitted herself into the radio compartment of an FW-190 um, twin-seat aircraft. So that's, it's, it's already got a second cockpit, which it really wasn't designed for. And then there was a radio compartment, and she got herself uh, into that. And she was probably the last person to take off from Berlin 
um, in a Fleserstorch to go uh, up to Denmark. And Eric spent quite a while chasing her around uh, Germany because she was a key person that needed to be uh, interrogated, and so the Russians didn't get her as well. These are some of the guys, though. This guy in the middle, he really, really liked. Kurt Tank, the design... Uh, the, well, first of all, the assistant chief test pilot um, of Focke Wolf, but, but the chief designer as well. Uh, and he absolutely thought that this man was a complete and total genius. Um, and whenever you spoke to him about German aircraft, and we got on to the, which are your favourite aeroplanes, and it was always the Fort Wolf 190D four-dora, um, and it was because he reckons that that man had made that aircraft work because he was a pilot and he was a designer, so he was able to put both of things uh, together. He didn't have a lot of time for Willy Messerschmitt. Um, he thought Willy Messerschmitt that 109 should not have been there as the principal fighter aircraft of the Luftwaffe because it was the wrong aircraft. Heinkel had a much better aircraft um, in the, the 112 and the, and the uh, 115. Um, but he thought, you know, this, this is a member of the Nazi party who just profiteered from his relationship with Goering. And he didn't really have any time for him whatsoever. But he did have, of course, Eric had the opportunity to go around and talk to all these people. And as a result of that... We get lots and lots of technology ideas. We get, well, first of all, we get some wind tunnels. Um, I, I'm not sure if the Farnborough wind tunnels are still uh, extent, but they were certainly ones we borrowed um, and from Germany and were uh, created across. In the Second World War, Italy had supersonic wind tunnels and so did Germany, but we didn't. Um, our designers... Um, Mitchell, classic example, didn't believe in wind tunnels, um, didn't see what the benefit was. Eric was a complete and total um, convert. Remember, his degree is modern languages. It's not aeronautical engineering. He's not a, an engineer, but he had the brain that could pick up what he needed to know about these things. The way that he writes and the way that he spoke really gives you an impression that he really ought to be um, a, an engineer but not. And I wonder, just wonder, if that, um, what today we might call social science or, or um, the humanities, just allay, allowed him to look at things in a slightly different way, which, which gave him uh, a, a better way of, 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 of doing these things. Um, a, few, a few firsts. Um, uh, that isn't because um, he forgot to lower the undercarriage. I just want to make that absolutely clear. That's the... Uh, the the rubber duck, uh, rubber duck, rubber dick, duck, <laughs> dick. I'll get it right in a minute. Um, I, I think what's interesting about that, those of you who have flown off carriers will notice the plane guard um, is coming in quite close uh, at this stage here. Um, normally you'd expect to see her uh, back there, but she's coming in quite close because this is a lunatic thing to do. Um, this wasn't particularly brilliant either. Um, and... Um, uh, 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 Eric, Eric's wonderful pictures that, that, that I found um, with, uh, thanks to Glenn going through some of the, the, uh, the family uh, uh, albums um, of uh, there's, there's, a, there's a picture of Eric climbing down from the aircraft and a more relieved pilot I don't think I've ever seen very interesting because not, not often did Eric Brown allow his emotions to go across his face just this one time uh, I find it but this is completely bonkers I'm, the, the landing speed is below the stall speed. I mean, you know, how, how 1.8 seconds if the aircraft goes asymmetric before it flips. Um, you know, this, this, is, this is just bonkers. And, of course, it was all about um, 618 Squadron, the highball weapon, going to Japan on um, fleet carriers and attacking the, the Japanese warships. So going into the Pacific War. Um, quite, quite remarkable um, uh, that you should do it. And, of course, um, when Eric arrived back at Farnborough, his boss said, oh, hello, I didn't expect to see you. And he went, well, you know I was coming back. He said, I didn't expect to see you alive. <laughs> um, tells you something about, about the man. He just cracked on and, and completed um, uh, the, uh, uh, the whole programme of, of taking these aircraft onto ships. We needed to do this. Um, 
he became such an expert that he went to America and explained to the Americans uh, for the Antietam, for example, how you put an angled deck on, the mirror sight. Um, he um, reckoned that Admiral Campbell, who did um, uh, the, the angled flight deck and, of course, did the ski jump for the Invincible class, was uh, one of the greatest unsung heroes of British naval aviation. I mean, I knew Dennis Farquharson Campbell very well when I wrote my very first book. Um, uh, he, he had commanded Art Royal Four. Um, a delightful man, lived in a converted church near, near, um, near Alton. And it, he had a very similar attitude to Eric, that you had to arrive at 11 o'clock because that's when sherry is served. And those of you um, who knew Eric well would have had sherry uh, with, with Eric because that's what you do. And what about helicopters? Well, his first flight, actually, this isn't his first flight, but it, it shows the helicopter type, that's the Sikorsky R4, was on the 4th of March, 1945. Now, Eric tells me that he and two other uh, people, two Royal Air Force officers, went up to speak um, to uh, Liverpool docks, um, where they had unpacked um, three of these aircraft, and he had to deliver it to Farnborough. Uh, no, sorry, to, to RAF um, Andover, which was then going to be the centre of all things rotary. Um, so they do what test pilots do. Uh, they asked for, you know, perhaps some pilot's notes would be good uh, at this stage. Um, just, you know, flip card would be good. Flight reference cards. Anyone know how to start it? <laughs> um, anyway, they flew them down. They got to Andover and... Eric said, and the first thing I thought was, I really do need now somebody to teach me how to fly a helicopter. <laughs> He's just flown the whole length, more or less the length of the whole country. Um, but what this did was give, being involved in helicopters, which was the post-naval career of Eric Brown, was to give him access to a lot of interesting people, particularly this guy, Sergei Sikorsky, um, son of, of Igor, the first man to, to hover in the VS-300. Um, and in fact, the first time I met Eric was um, uh, he invited me to lunch and he said there'd be a few interesting people there. There were basically all the designers of all the helicopters around to lunch, including Sergei, who became uh, quite a friend. I used to see him a lot at the Helicopter International events and the symposia and the Quad A, which was the American Army Aviation Association uh, meetings in Garmisch, Parch and Kirken. Um, oh, what a great, what a great guy. He and Eric really, really hit it off. Um, and there, there's some wonderful um, uh, reminiscences, and I think Glenn has some as well, as, as, a, as a young man of, 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 of this great Polish-Russian uh, family that were just as eccentric and as bonkers as you could possibly be. Um, and and, and a, a great man, which really, I think, helped Eric tremendously. Because you know, when Eric left uh, the Royal Navy, he went to become uh, the... Uh, DG of the British uh, Helicopter Advisory Board, and through Eric's work and, and those in the industry, or coordinated by Eric, we actually got rules for offshore flying, so for the North Sea. Um, exploration for the North Sea was coming at the, at the right time. As always, Eric was in the right place at the right time um, and did a lot of work um, with getting helicopters in, in the right place. But before then, of course, um, as fly... I'm sorry about the resolution on this. That will teach me to to steal something um, from, uh, from the web. Um, but uh, display flying, um, there's a couple of famous little anecdotes there about um, uh, displaying over the wrong airfield. It isn't just the Americans who do that. Um, Eric led uh, the team over um, the wrong airfield and displayed and would not, uh, would not believe it until he'd landed. Um, he also had a, a habit of, um, as a squadron commander of... Uh, marking down some of his people, perhaps more, having, being the only army officer who's a member of the Fleet Armed Officers Association, I have a number of times been sat next to um, people who will tell me that their career was completely blighted by Eric, Eric Brown, and I said, what did you do? And he said, well, it wasn't very good, and he marked me down. Um, a hard taskmaster, this man. I don't think I would like to, as a squadron boss, um, but what a star having got the Seahawk into a position where we could display it, where it went on carriers and whatever, it became, of its time, the classic jet aircraft for, for air carrier operations. 
And of course, that enabled him then to go uh, with our German friends and the British Naval Air Mission in Germany. Because he spoke the language and because he had, he'd been to all the air bases, basically scrounging stuff, stealing stuff, um, liberating stuff, repatriating stuff, whatever you want to call it, um, he got to fly even more of these. And these are all in his logbook, all these German across Seahawk, German uh, Navy, Marina Flieger, uh, and the Gannet as well. Um, you may have seen there was a very interesting documentary on Discovery Channel a few, few weeks ago um, about why the Germans bought the Starfighter, not the political shenanigans and the alleged brown envelopes, but why they didn't buy the Saunders Row, I think, 1153 um, rocket-assisted jet aircraft that all the Germans wanted, and so did Eric, um, but they didn't have the political clout of the Americans, so the Germans bought the Starfighter and lost 210 pilots as a result. Um, but I think he enjoyed this time. He enjoyed this time because it's the first time uh, he met Her Majesty the Queen uh, when Britannia went down uh, the Rhine um, to Cologne and uh, was birthed alongside... <coughs> There's a great picture of, um, of Eric with uh, Konrad Adenauer uh, coming down uh, the steps... Um, of, uh, uh, of Britannia and of course it, it really easy for Eric he spoke German as, as did Lynn um, so th th there was a great bonding and you know, I, I wonder whether um, what the questions were at the time I mean for somebody who had spent before the war in Germany with Adenauer had been a political prisoner before the war that would have been a very interesting I'd like to have been a fly on the wall in those conversations um, a person who I think probably was, in later years, Eric's best friend. I think that I think that's I use that that term advisedly. I really think his relationship with Neil Armstrong, which started at Farnborough in the back of a Land Rover um, on a Sunday, because if you were Eric, you spent eight years testing. You didn't have a weekend off. You didn't have a holiday. Um, you just were testing. And a Sunday morning, Neil Armstrong was doing some test flying as well. The relationship led to Eric going to Patuxent River. It led to a lifelong relationship with, with the astronauts. Um, and uh, a book is out um, this month uh, called Into the Black, which is about the shuttle. And uh, the author, Roland White, sitting um, in the back there. Roland interviewed Eric um, about this time. And what I find really interesting is, and I think, Roland, you probably back me up on this, is Eric didn't rate going to the moon as being Neil Armstrong's greatest achievement because he said a computer took him there. He reckoned that the X-15 was Neil Armstrong's greatest achievement because that was a pilot's error. That's test flying um, as far as Eric was concerned. The, the, the interesting story is that um, a bunch of uh, American um, uh, test pilots and uh, astronaut candidates wanted Eric to fly the 15. After all, you'll recall that, that Eric was going to be the pilot of the Miles 52, which was going to be the first aircraft through the sound barrier until Mr. Attlee gave all the plans and the aircraft to the Americans in order that they could go through the sound barrier first, and presumably uh, we could get half a percent off um, a uh, exchange rate or something. Um, Eric was always very, very sore about that, and some bloke called Jägermeister or... Jaeger, whatever, went through first. Uh, he rated Neil Armstrong above all others uh, as a test pilot. He thought that, 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 and as a person, he liked the person uh, that's here. They, Eric was cleared to fly the X-15 on one condition. He became an American. That is not Eric Brown. This is a man who was prepared to stand up on on uh, Scottish television said, this, you, the, I'm a Brit, there's a union here. I might be born in Scotland, but I'm a Brit. You know, say, vote to stay in the union. This is how Eric felt about this. Despite the fact this is probably the thing he really wanted to do, he was not prepared to compromise, which I think is really important. Um, Lossy Mouth in command. Uh, remember, test pilot, he was an SL. Um, to those of you who are uh, wearing the tie, SLs? Anyone SL shags here? Oh, yeah, okay, fine. So you know exactly what happens here in SL Shag. You get, 
you get sealing really. He was dry list, he was not going to command at sea, um, and he wasn't really going to go above, above captain. Um, I would not have liked to have been one of his squadron commanders at Lossiemouth when he was the when he was captain of Lossiemouth. I think that would have been to live up to his standards would have been really, really hard. Um, having said that, um, it's very interesting that the Navy were almost apologetic for the fact that he had to retire. I find that interesting. Now, it may well just be nice letters from, from senior people. But I think they actually understood just how much uh, Eric uh, contributed. Um, Besides being GG of the, uh, the British um, Helicopter Advisory Board, of course, he was also a Helicopter Club of Great Britain, an international judge. Um, this is one of the, the trips. This is about the time that I first met him um, to Belarus uh, to, to, uh, uh, to judge the, the Schlarlam competition, which you can see the, the, uh, the water. Or actually, it looks like that's somebody being presented with, with roses. Perhaps it isn't water. Um, now I see the picture slightly larger. When they arrived at the airport at, at Moscow, um, Eric was sort of, if you like, in the second echelon. There's, there was a, uh, the um, uh, FAI uh, had a whole bunch of senior people. There was a Frenchman, there was a, uh, an American um, there, and Eric was in the second sort of group. And a big uh, Zlin uh, rolled up for Eric. And he said, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm just the Brit rep. There's, you know, the, the boss is here, the Frenchman and the American. He said, no, no, no. Um, we know your war record. Uh, we know what you contributed to the end of fascism. This car is for you. Uh, and I find that really, really, really interesting. And it led to this. He's an honoured military pilot of the USSR. He is the only foreign person who has this decoration I actually never saw him wear it. And in fact, this is one I've taken off the whip. I don't know if, if, if we've located it, but he was um, a, an honoured military pilot of the USSR. From that, he was presented with that because of his contribution to the defence of the Soviet Union, of the motherland in the Great Patriotic War, by his contribution in test flying. Um, I find that really interesting. That's the internationalism. Uh, of Eric. It wasn't just the Americans, it wasn't just the Germans. It spread uh, across the world. Um, this is probably the thing that he most liked doing, was being on Desert Island Discs, um, with this um, Scottish lady here, whose name I can't remember, but uh, she used to be on Channel 5, and, and I, I seem to remember doing a few um, uh, turns with her, as they say in television, um, on Channel 5 News. Um, but just look at his face. It, it's, this is, this is a man who's really quite enjoying his life. And this is, this is the last year. This is this wonderful auction we had um, for cl Too Close for Comfort. We went out to dinner afterwards. And Jean, I don't know if you remember, but it was quarter to 12. And we had to say to Eric, the restaurant would like to close. The staff would like to go home. Could you please drink your whiskey up? Because we need to go. This is Browns, who actually, I have to say would have kept us there all evening if they, if they, if they needed to. He was in fine form. Um, there he is at, at Biggin Hill with uh, the president and Simon Levy from, uh, from the society. Uh, we had a little, a little dinner uh, at Rise and Jet um, to celebrate the hardest day, uh, which is when I found out that he'd flown sea gladiators in the Battle of Britain. Um, and it, it was one of those brilliant occasions where uh, he just stood up and talked and told us things that I must have heard him speak two or three hundred times. Little bits came out that I hadn't heard. It's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. It's a great evening. Um, and that's um, uh, First Sea Lord. He's First Sea Lord for the next, what, three or four weeks. Uh, George Zambellis uh, with Eric. Um, and what he says is his favourite, or said was his favourite, picture out of that collection uh, that um, uh, Tim Manor uh, acquired um, uh, at at this auction, um, and that's in Bucks Club in Mayfair, where we had a, a small celebration of sort of 120 people, I think, uh, turned up uh, in the end. Uh, to me, um, that, was, that was, Eric was obviously tired, um, obviously in some pain, but was, was going to talk, was going to stand up, 
Um, and he was not going to let the audience down. He wasn't going to let his followers down. And I thought that was just fabulous. We found that night we had in the room the only two people living who've flown the, two, the Meshavit 262. Um, and I kept, there were a whole bunch of other things that, uh, uh, that we had in the room. It was just a, a magical time. To draw to, to a close, this is a little limerick that I've sort of manufactured with the help of a few friends. Um, and I'll, 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 let you, uh, I'll let you read that. I think it's absolutely spot on. Um, and it's, it was a huge privilege to have known uh, Eric Melrose Brown. I count myself really honoured and privileged. Uh, and to speak to you tonight has been absolutely fabulous. And so thank you for, for laughing at the right time, which is always important to a speaker. Um, I think we're supposed to close that. Can, if, if there are a couple of questions, can I take those, Don? It, and, and anyone like to? Because we've got, we've got a whole bunch of people here. Um, uh, uh, we've got people who've known him as long as I have. We've got people here who know different bits of his life. And, of course, we've got family. Um, any questions, anyone? Anyone like to? Anyone like to add? Oh, yeah, you all want to add, I'm sure. Sir. I'd just like to mention again what I mentioned to you earlier, um, which is that uh, when I was over at Eric's house uh, within the last uh, six months, uh, he happened to mention that Harold Penrose was mm. his mentor, and that may be a key piece of information. I don't know if it's recorded. It is. It is. It is now, and and now lots of other. Um, People have got it, and I won't be able to use it in his biography. <laughs> Thank, you. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else like to take, you know, take any of my little pieces from the biography? Sir, you, do, anything you want to say that I, you know, might want to talk to you earlier about? Oh, uh, <laughs> Jim, I, I, I know where you live. Uh, I was chair of the historical group, and we had a lecture on the post-war exhibition of German aircraft at Farnborough in this room, and Winkle... Eric Brown came along, and after the lecture, he gave a little impromptu talk about actually flying them, and it just made the evening, and has made it an evening that none of us who were there would ever forget. That was absolutely brilliant. And do you know what, what's interesting is that is not the only time. I think every time um, Eric spoke to a group, and he always had time for the, the Shoreham Aviation Museum, or the Small Field Aviation Society, or or whomsoever it was. He always had time for people and to, to, to stand up and talk to them. I mean, a man of huge energy. Um, and, and I find it really, um, really sad that we've lost that one person. As Don says, they'll never be his like uh, again. He lived through that key place in aeronautics, that key period from 1936 to the present day, where he just about saw everything happen. You know... Um, it, seeing Hitler twice, um, uh, crit critiquing his syntax, I think it's fabulous. You know, in, interviewing all the senior Germans, um, knowing all of the astronauts. You know, these, are, these are all fundamental things. 487 types of aeroplane. Nobody will ever do that again because most of these aeroplanes no longer fly. Or we don't even have exhibits and uh, examples in, in, um, uh, in museums. What a, what a life. What a life. I'm, I'm so grateful that I had that, that opportunity. I'm very grateful for this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the Flight Operations Group at the Society, I'd like to sincerely thank Paul for sharing some great memories of the remarkable man, Captain Winkle Brown. Uh, and we're also very grateful that friends and family could join us for celebrating an amazing life in aviation. I didn't have the privilege of, of meeting Captain Brown myself, but he and his colleagues inspired me to join the profession. And I'll be eternally grateful. I feel I've been paid to do my hobby all my career. And I suppose it's our, our role now to inspire the next generation into our profession. And certainly Paul is doing an amazing job of that, keeping alive the history of aviation and the achievements of its pioneers. And again, I'd like you to join me in a sincere vote of thanks to Paul for sharing some amazing memories of a truly remarkable man.
from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.